You are listening to First Church Charlotte. All right, let's stand together. We're going to read in Exodus chapter number 25, and we're going to read of the instructions given for the construction of the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of Testimony. And let's read at verse number 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, and two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. These are angels. Of hammered work, you shall make them at two ends of the mercy seat. Place or make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherub at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherub shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. They shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. Somebody say above. Above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. I'm going to entitle this uh, Bible uh, message today, uh, A Sacred Emptiness. A Sacred Emptiness. Before you're seated, smile at your neighbor and say, I'm glad to be sitting by you in church because I can keep my eye on you. Amen. God bless you all. Well, I was going to preach from the New Testament today and preach a lot about grace and the like, but then I got a speeding ticket on the way to church. And I decided there was going to be no more mercy for anybody. It's going to be all Old Testament judgment. So I went straight to the book of Exodus to get a nice, good judgment message. I figured if I couldn't get out of the crime, then you don't get to get out of the crime either. And so that's how that happened. I could not talk. I even acted religious and everything. I even, I was like, sir, I'm a pastor. I blew my voice out preaching camp meeting. I'm a pastor. I'm on my way, you know, it didn't work. And so uh, he asked me, is this your car? I said, no, I stole it last night. I had to get to church today. <laughs> I thought it was funny, but he didn't laugh. So, <laughs> But he liked my wife, so that worked out well. That, that was fine. And he gave me the ticket instead of her, even though it was her car. So, uh, anyway, moving along. All righty, all judgment all of the time. That's what the service is here today. <laughs> Amen. So I am, I have been thinking about some of the Old Testament patterns. A word you'll see in the Bible when referring to uh, things like the Old Covenant and the tabernacle and the temple you will find this word used a good bit, and that's this word pattern. And so we can look at patterns, and we learn a certain truth about 
even this covenant of grace that we are a part of. I'm so glad to be a part of a covenant of grace. My life can't stand up to judgment, <laughs> and neither can yours. But through Jesus Christ, there is, a mercy, there is mercy available to us all. Can I have an amen? And so we all of us, we all of us celebrate mercy in our life. But I want to remind you that even if you're looking in the Old Testament for a good judgment message, you still have to deal with something called the mercy seat. Even if you're mad because you got a ticket and no one else did. Even if you're upset because it was daylight savings time, and if there's any Sunday, preacher should get a pass on speeding to church. It's daylight saving Sunday. <laughs> and so you go to the Old Testament to get you some good judgments, and you can't even get enough judgment there. You stumble right upon this thing called the mercy seat. And if you seek to learn from the mercy seat or you seek to learn from the tabernacle plan or the miracles of the Old Testament, it all, in a beautiful way, is fulfilled in the New Testament through the sacrificial, redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are celebrators. We are celebrators of Jesus's work of hope and redemption. Because of Jesus Christ, we have a church. Because of Jesus Christ, we have an altar. Because of Jesus Christ, we have second chances. Anybody ever need a second chance? You know that's not the truth. You needed 200 chances. Two, two was not enough for you. You used up those two before you crossed go. We are blessed through the work of Jesus Christ, and I'm not tired of celebrating that. I'm not tired of celebrating it. It is the premier testimony of the church that through Jesus Christ, everything is better, everything is sweeter, everything is newer, and we have a new promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ. I'm not tired of celebrating that. And so I want to point out something about the construction of the Ark of Testimony. Interestingly, we call it the Ark of the Covenant, and we're not wrong to do so, uh, but that is a term we use very, very much. The Scripture often calls it the Ark of Testimony. Somebody say testimony. And so for us, it represents a covenant to the house in the lineage of Abraham, and that's right, that's not wrong, but there is more beyond that. And there is within its intent and within its construction and its placement in the worship of the covenant people, there is the pattern of understanding and scriptural teaching and Holy Spirit manifestation, Shekinah glory manifestation is all in that pattern. And so I want to uh, give you by way of introduction to what I'm wanting to say today, I want to give you a real quick review. Perhaps this won't be a review for some of you, perhaps it will be new. Uh, but let me give you insight into this Ark of Testimony. So uh, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, Egyptian bondage, they were led out by Moses, right? Sometimes when I'm preaching, I get excited and I say Noah, but that's just because I didn't get enough sleep the night before. You know it's Moses. Uh, last Sunday, I was told that I had Abraham in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> To which I say, oh, well, duh, yeah, of course I did. I, I was doing my second message of the day, and I was tired, and you're lucky I didn't have Trump in the Garden of Eden. 
so um, they come out of Egypt. Okay? Am I in trouble? <laughs> they, they have, they have, uh, they come out of Egyptian bondage, led by Abraham, no, Moses, and they get to this first stopping place, and God's going to give them the law. And the first manifestation of law is what? Somebody say the Ten Commandments. You know you were thinking that. It was right there on the tip of your tongue. The first manifestation of law is the Ten Commandments. How does Moses get the Ten Commandments? Well, the Lord leads him up to a mountaintop. He spends time there in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord engraves these commandments, this way of, this this order for life, this law foundation, engraves it upon stone tablets and gives it to Abraham. Now, while Abraham is up being super spiritual, like Pastor Nate on the mountaintop, the children of Israel are down in the valley causing trouble like Sister Hill, for example. Okay, so, uh, yes, you, I've lost one pound, guys. I've lost one pound. Thank you. Now, like Sister Hill's causing trouble at the bottom, and Pastor Nate is being spiritual up here, and the Lord gives, let's get back on the Bible. The Lord gives Moses tablets of stone. He is engraved with his hand, and Moses goes back down to the people, and he sees all of this confusion. He sees not just confusion, but he sees their attempt to approach God. And they do what everybody does. They come up with a religious system that seemeth right unto them. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. Okay? That scripture is not referring to a way that seemeth wrong. Sinners usually know when they're living in sin. But there is a way that seems right but it is a dead-end religion. It is not filled with the power, or shall I say, it hasn't the Shekinah glory upon it. Okay, they are come, they've come up with a religiosity that seemeth right to them. Where, how do they do this? Well, they don't have direction, so they come up with something that seems right to them. All of us go about this the same way. You think about what you know. You think about your inherited traditions. You think about your parents' story. You think about your grandparents' context. You think about generations. You think about what you know, how they did it in Egypt, and you think, well, they did it like this in Egypt, and so you put all these plans together. You say, hey, well, let's just do the whole calf thing, and uh, we'll get a golden calf, and we'll just do it the way that seems right. There's a problem. At the end of human reasoning or seeming is death, and they go through this religiosity. They're not trying to be sinners at this moment. They're trying to be religious, This is important because if you don't understand how our own human tradition and our own subservience to the thing that seems right can lead us away from what is the right, okay? So here we have these people. They're trying to be religious. They're trying. And they're like, let's do it this way. Moses, this is all a pattern, and it's prophetic and it's powerful. Moses comes down from the mountaintop. He's carrying what? manifestation of law. He is carrying God's command. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. It's not brain science. Do what I said. Law. 
and he's carrying law, and he sees the error of the people, and he throws the stones down, and they break upon the ground. Now, let's pause here for a quick station identification. Why does Moses throw the tablets representing God's law down and they break. Why does he do that? Is it because the people ran up, took them from him, and dashed them on the stones? No. Did the people do anything with the stones? Nothing whatsoever. Why does Moses lose his temper and break the law? Stay with me. Because that is the pattern, the story, the gospel truth and the insight into human nature from Eden all the way to Revelations. We cannot keep the law. Our own nature fights against it. He loses his temper. No sinner down there worshiping the golden calf in some inappropriate manner came up and broke it for him. He lost his temper. The leader who's been on the mountaintop being spiritual can't even keep his spirit right long enough to give people direction. Hmm. I know that's not as fun as acting like I'm good and they're bad. It's more fun to act like I'm good and they're bad. But the truth is we all of us need help in this walk. And we all of us need strength in this walk. And we all of us need mercy in this walk. From the eldest to the youngest, from the richest to the poorest. From the most righteous to the least righteous to the most educated to the least educated, we all need mercy. And so God sends Moses back up to the mountaintop, and Moses does laboriously with a chisel what God had done with a finger. Now, in Hebrew tradition, if you read this in Hebrew, the, the writings and commentaries of the, 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 the faith uh, of Judaism, they say that inside the Ark of Testimony is both the pieces of the broken law and the hand-scribed replacement of the new law by Moses' labor and sweat and toil. And there is in this ark of testimony all the elements of the whole story of redemption. You have the failure, you have the effort by works, the broken law, and you have it all in this ark of witness, ark of testimony. And there is more in this story. What is inside the ark? Well, we know there's the pieces of the broken law, if the Hebrews are correct, and we have to assume they are. They were the ones who were there. They were the ones recording. Um, there were the new law. There are also a bowl. There is also a bowl filled with manna. What does that show? That shows God's miraculous provision. Where would you put the evidence of God's miraculous provision? You would put it in the ark of witness, the ark of testimony. What else would be in there? The rod that Aaron had that budded as a sign of God's blessing upon him and Moses and his choice of them as the leaders of the children of Israel. What is in that box? 
it is the testimonies that of what God has done for them and what God has promised them and the right way to live in response to God's protection and God's blessing upon them. That is all in the ark of testimony. So let me say something right now, coming at this from a little bit of a different angle that may surprise you. You need to protect the testimony in your life. You need to value it. You need to fight for it. You need to protect it. You need to hold on to it. You need to believe it is important enough for you to protect it and treat it as sacred. If God's done anything for you, you need to put it in a safe place and you need to tell the enemy you don't get to touch this. You need to tell the trouble in your life you don't get to touch this. This is what God's done for me. You need to tell that boss who doesn't like you you don't get to touch what God has done for me. You need to tell the enemy who would like to destroy you, you don't get to touch what is in the bar, the ark of testimony. I need to protect it. I need to hold on to it. I need to believe it. You need to fight for your faith, my friend. You need to fight for your faith. And when the enemy comes in and causes you to doubt, you need to cast him out. Say, you get your hands off my testimony. They protect that testimony. They put it in this ark as a remembrance. One of the most powerful things any of us can do in our life is to create a systematic valuing of God's blessings to us, his provision towards us, his protection of us, and then when trouble comes, you're like the psalmist. There's nothing that can happen where you can't start singing. I was lost in sin, but then Jesus entered in, and a little light of heaven entered my soul. I protect what God has done for me. And when trouble comes, I testify of what God has done for me. God, mm, my Lord, my Lord, I want you to believe. I want you to claim it. What God has done for you is ever so valuable to you. You need to hold it sacred in your life. Somebody destroys your faith in God's blessing in your life. They have done you nothing but uh, but, but, but a curse. They have brought to fruition a, a real curse in your life because you no longer have the strength of your testimony. We're going to get those testimonies. We're going to hold on to them. We're going to celebrate them. And so the children of Israel, they get these signs of God's blessing upon them, signs of the testimony of the covenant. And they say, oh, we're making this sacred. We're making this, we're making this holy unto the Lord. We are putting this in a box to protect it. I want to point out to you, the box did not protect the Shekinah. The Shekinah was never in the box. I'm going to say it again because some of you were thinking about what you're going to do after church. Let me tell you again. The Shekinah was never in the box. Not a single time. What was in the box? The testimony, the witness, the ark of testimony is in the box. They are protecting what God has done for them. Let me tell you, you need to protect what God has done for you. You need to celebrate what God has done for you. You need to exalt what God has done for you. You need to hold it close and hold it dear and hold it fast and not let anything touch what God has done for you. There's going to be enough trouble to go around. You're going to need some testimony in your life to say, I'm going to make it through this because God's already brought me through that. You need some testimony in your life to say, this is going to be okay because I'm already victorious with this. You protect the testimony. 
God's presence doesn't need protecting. It's our testimony that needs to be protected. Sometimes we protect our testimony, and sometimes our testimony protects us. So what about the Shekinah? If the Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of God's presence, is not in the box, and it's not, never, not once, where is it? We read in the text of how he said he would speak to them above the mercy seat. Now, let me point out something interesting about the mercy seat. Uh, the mercy seat is forged, finely worked gold, all one piece. There's two, two cherubs uh, that are facing each other. There's two type of angels that are unique in God's creative order unique to the worship, the adulation, and the glorification of God. That's what these angels do. They are the angels that are around the throne saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And symbolically, they show on top of this mercy seat, they show this inclination of position where they face each other and they actually look at each other through or over the Shekinah. They look at each other, but they look through God's glory. Worship is very much necessary for God's created beings. We are the ones who need the worship. Because if we don't keep worship in our life, our problems get bigger than our God. Worship, we look one to another through the Shekinah. And we speak one to another of God's glory. And we worship God. And we it's as though the praise or the worship redounds back and forth. It's as though this side of the church says God is good. And this side of the church says for his mercy endureth forever. I was lost in sin, but he loved me for his mercy endureth forever. Over here they say I once was down on my luck and brokenhearted, nearly quit. And uh, this over, side over here is, but his mercy endures forever. And the echoing worship and glorification of God goes back and forth. And through the presence of God, we direct worship uh, one to another about God. God's not some narcissist on high who needs to be told he's great. Honey, he's great. But us created beings who often follow in the path of Lucifer and want to deify ourselves need to speak one to another about his greatness and thus keep our perspectives in divine order. I'm laying some heavy stuff on you here today. So the Shekinah is... In this spot above the mercy seat, and these two angels looking at each other, inclined toward the Shekinah, look at each other, and they extend their wings one toward another, and their wings touch. And so what is created? What is created above the mercy seat is a sacred emptiness. a sacred emptiness. Nothing goes there. It is a sacred place. And these angels create this enclosed sacred emptiness with wings 
of adulation and worship in the middle. And the Shekinah dwells in this empty place. Why is that important? Because there is a truth that is ever so much a part of the human condition. And that is this. In our quest for meaning and in our search for happiness and in our desire for self-actualization, we will feel the emptiness within with everything else in the world. People will try to make their career what it means for them to have meaning. But we are created to seek meaning. We are created for something to matter. The curse of our generation is is this modern nihilism. Nihilism is just a 50-cent philosophical word that means nothing means nothing. (laughs) Nothing matters. Just whatever you like. Just nothing matters. I'm here to tell you, if nihilism made you happy, then I would be much more inclined toward you pursuing it. But if you want to end up at the end of bitterness, follow a lifestyle of nihilism where nothing means nothing. There is no morality. There is no truth. There is no reason. There is no goodness. There is just this life. You live that way, pretty soon you end up with a society where over 60,000 people a year overdose on drugs. Two years ago, less than about 30,000 people died every year on drugs. In two years, our society has gone from a little over 30,000 to uh, over 60,000 people dying from drug overdoses in two years. This recent uh, Time Magazine photo expo, I don't know if you guys saw it. Uh, If you go to Time Magazine online, you'll find it. It's a photojournalist expo of communities through America where they literally, they they don't have a lot of words. It's just pictures of the opioid crisis. And they're showing people literally ODN right there on the ground. They're showing children being taken from mothers. They're showing people trying to, they're showing people in the hospital. It's horrifying. And you say, how did we get here? As a nation, we're, we're, we're very blessed. We have more entertainment than we've ever had. We have more things to do. Nowadays, you know, it's like if you don't have any series you're watching on Netflix, then you go to church. Well, if you don't want to do that, well, just go to Carowinds or go to uh, ride your mountain bike or, or follow a team or, or go to a concert. There is an unlimited set of options available for you to fill yourself with entertainment. And within all of it is this call of the Spirit reminding you that the only true satisfaction in our lives is going to be when the Creator is in some way reintroduced to the Creator. The creation is reintroduced to the Creator. Why would that be meaningful? Because when God made you, that essence within you is divine. And the nature within you is eternal. And until you are reunited to something that is both divine and eternal, nothing means nothing. And here in this example of a pattern that you see in this ark of uh, testimony, this ark of witness, uh, the ark of the covenant, there is this space that is empty and nothing goes there. They don't put a candle there. They don't hang a rug in there. They don't put a picture in there. It is a sacred emptiness. It is built 
built upon testimony and it is encircled with worship. And this is God's place right here. In our lives, when we feel ourselves with the things of this world, we are living an idolatry that is just as real as when people looked at fake idols and says, that is where my hope lies. If you live your life thinking your career is going to satisfy you, I'm here to tell you it will be a great disappointment when you finally achieve what you thought it was that was going to fill your life with meaning. There is only one who can feel that part of your soul, and that is the presence of God in your life. That scripture, that scripture uh, in the in the, the Sermon on the Mount, where uh, Jesus says this this great great beautiful uh, statement, he said, "Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness." You see, hunger is the original emptiness. It's the first emptiness you experience in your life. And if you uh, have, <laughs> unless you, if you have any consciousness at all, you know you are hungry. Uh, babies are very effective at getting food brought to them. They have an astonishingly, astonishingly good alarm system to let you know they deserve some groceries. And if you won't give them groceries, they are going to make your life miserable because theirs is miserable too. It is the original emptiness, and yet here we live our lives trying to fill ourselves with everything but that which will be spiritual food to our soul. Spiritual junk food will not satisfy the spiritual man or woman within you. You need to properly care for your soul. And so, uh, let me let me let me tell you a story from the Old Testament. There's, it's in the life of Elisha, great prophet, tremendous miracles. Uh, he is in a time of famine, and he goes to this widow's house that she would often put him up, and she is suffering from the famine. And he asks her to cook something for him. And she says, um, we don't have anything. All we have is a little bit of bread, a little bit of oil. And we're going to cook this. And when we're done, well, I guess that'll be the end of the story. And uh, Elisha does something very politically incorrect. incorrect. Uh, I guess prophets can get away with this kind of thing. But us pastors, we would not get away with this at all. And um, he said, look, you cook it and feed me first. Now, can you see the cover of the Charlotte Observer if Pastor Nate tried to do that kind of thing right there? Local pastor steals food from the mouth of widows and orphans. I'd be like, yep, right here. Uh, Elisha is a prophet, and he can, well, he can do prophet stuff. And so he, he says, feed me first. And so before she actually does this feeding uh, he instructs her, or within the story, he instructs her, I want you to go, I want you to gather every vessel you have in this house. And then I want you to go out to your neighbors, and I want you to borrow every vessel that you can find. I want you to go down the street through the whole neighborhood, and I want you to bring me as much emptiness as you can. I want you to gather up all your emptiness, I want you to go down to the neighbor's house. I want you to gather up all their emptiness. I want you to go down to the end of the street and gather up all their emptiness. And I want you to bring me emptiness. And God will fill it. 
And so they bring the vessels. And we know the story. Miraculously, the oil began to flow. The vessels were filled to capacity. But once they were full, the miracle ended. There must be in our life a hunger for the things of God, which we protect. In this space of my heart, I don't let just anything sit in that part of my life. This is a protected emptiness that is in my life. I hunger and thirst after heaven's food. And I long in my spirit for God's presence upon me. I'm not going to try to fill this with entertainment. I'm not going to try to fill this with a relationship. I'm not going to try to fill this in some way living my life vicariously through my children. I'm not going to make all my life dependence on some materialistic possession. I protect at the core of me this sacred emptiness and I say only Jesus can satisfy my heart. Only Jesus sits in this part of my life. Hear me. Look at the pattern. Where is the presence of God? He sits upon a place of protected testimony and protected witness of what he has already done and what he has already promised. And in that protected place is God's provision, God's promise, and God's instruction. And we protect those things in our life. And then above this protected place, there is this angelic encirclement of praise, worship, and godly adulation. And it's in that place, that sacred emptiness, surrounded by worship and praise and built upon promise and presence. There is the presence of God in this sacred emptiness. Hear me today. We allow our hearts to be filled with everything but the presence of God. Let me preach here for a moment or two. We allow ourselves to be filled with carnality. We allow ourselves to be filled with sports and hobbies and career pursuits and wishing that and wanting that and trying that and then we wonder why our life is often empty because there's a spot in your heart that is a protected place and nothing is going to satisfy unless you get the presence of God in that place. We, all of us, must protect our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, I'm making a blatant appeal for personal devotion in every one of our lives. I'm making a blatant appeal for personal devotion in every one of our lives. I'm so thankful you come to the house of God and worship with all of us. I'm so thankful. Our church is better because you allow yourself to be knit together into the body of Christ. I thank you for that. I don't want you to quit. If you quit, I'm quitting. That's all I got to say right there. Not really. I'll keep going if I'm the only one. I I hope and pray, but I don't want to talk too tough and then be tested. I don't want you to quit coming to church. I don't want you to try to substitute public worship. But I am making a blatant appeal. I don't care if anybody jumps up and says amen. I don't care if anybody says, oh, I got the life-changing experience. I am making a blatant 
vulnerable appeal to everybody in this house to set aside some part of your day, some part of your life, and say, this is my sacred emptiness. And I don't fill this with everything else. The NFL doesn't touch this. The NBA doesn't touch this. Political parties, they don't touch this sacred space. My career, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. It doesn't touch this. Do you see? Am I making sense? I'm making a blatant, naked appeal. You set that place and you say, this is my sacred emptiness. If God doesn't fill it, it's not getting filled. And I will protect it. I will build it upon what God's already done. And I will circle it with praise and worship. That this is God's place in my life. And I will fight for it. I will protect it. It is sacred. I hope good things happen this year in my life. Not one of those things will touch this. One of the great tragedy of mature Christians is we let life affect that sacred place within us. And if things are going good at work, then we have a good time at church. If things are going bad at work, we stay home feel sorry for ourselves. God, help us to grow up. Can I have an amen? If our wife's getting along with us or our husband's nice to us, well, then we come to church ready to praise. But if things aren't going so good, you know, we just as soon miss because I can't get nothing out of church sitting by that center. <laughs> you let everything put its fingerprints on God in your life. And then you wonder why you have this sense of up and down and in and out and I'm good, I'm bad, I'm strong, I'm weak. No, 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 no. You need to find that place in your life. You need to build it on the promises of God and you need to circle it with the protection of praise. And you need to say, this is my sacred emptiness right here. And I am looking heavenward and I'm saying, I hunger and I thirst after your righteousness and will you pour into me your presence and will you make me a partaker of your divine nature I am empty and I am hungry fill me O oh Lord behold the Lord says I stand at the door and knock and if anybody would hear my voice they could open unto me and I would come in and I would have fellowship. I would sup with him. I would have fellowship. But he will not compete for your sacred places. He is either Lord or he's not. He will not cast down our idols. We must cast down our idols. He will not cut down our groves of false worship. We must cut down our groves of false worship. And we must say, here I am, Lord. I'm an empty vessel. Fill me with your presence and your spirit. And so my blatant appeal to you today is starting right now. You find a way to create a sacred place in your life. And you say, this is unto the Lord. And I'm going to fight for it. And I'm going to dedicate myself to it. And I am going to seek the Lord while he might be found. I am going to celebrate him in my life. 
you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know his presence is looking to take up residence in your life? And he's looking. And so make space in your life for the presence of God. And be the one to say, I'm empty. Fill me, O Lord. I'm I'm not going to be happy through my career, through my hobbies. I'm not even going to find happiness through my loved ones. I must find it through you or I've missed it. I've missed it. Let's all stand. I invite you to step out of the chair you're in right now, and I'd like you to come and gather around the front as we do on our weekend service. Our guests and friends, feel free to come with us. We're going to pray together. We're going to apply the word of the Lord to our lives together. I know I have made a quite serious appeal to you today, and that's okay. That's what preachers are supposed to do. Uh, I want us to respond in our life. I want us to respond in our individual dedication, our individual focus upon the things of God and upon what it is that we need. Pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, we call upon you right now. We call upon you right now, oh God. I pray for your touch upon every life here today. I pray for your anointing to flow into our hearts and lives, oh God. Save us from our carnal nature, Lord Jesus. Save us from our own carnal nature, Lord Jesus. Make us seekers of you. Help us to be hungry, desirous of good works in our life, desirous of your presence in our hearts. We want to be the people upon whom the Shekinah is invested through the Holy Spirit. We want to be the tabernacle, the temple that is filled with the Shekinah through the Holy Spirit, oh God. We want to live it with our lives. We want to walk it every day. We want it to be fundamental to who we are as a church. We want it to be fundamental to who we are as individual believers. Would you help us today? If we need to be stirred in our spirit, would you stir us, oh God? If we need to be awakened in our heart, would you awaken us, Lord God? If we need to be somehow shaken from the things of this world, would you shake us, Lord Jesus? We must desire you and long for you above everything else in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Yes, somebody lift your voice right now. Call upon the Lord in your own heart. Hallelujah. If there's someone near you and it's appropriate, why don't you pray for someone standing close? You take their hand, put a hand on their shoulder, whatever is comfortable and appropriate. Let's pray. Let's turn this whole house into a prayer. Lord God, we're hungry today. We're desiring you. We're hungry for you, Lord. Awaken within us a passion for your kingdom. Let the fire of your zeal burn strongly within us, oh God. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I will run after you. I will run. I will run.
Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's be, let's be vulnerable here for a moment. How many of you I've been preaching to today? <laughs> I raised my own hand because I've been preaching to me too. So, if you will respond to what the Spirit would say to the church, we must be a house filled with people who are passionately pursuing the presence, the promises of God in our lives. That's the only way to get it right. There's a million different opinions about this and opinions about that, but let me tell you one thing one thing that supersedes any opinion, any idea, any personal preference, one thing. Do we, as a church culture, have a, pres a passion for the presence of God in our life? Do we, as individuals, have a longing not to be lovers of this world, but to set our attentions on things above? This is not about asceticism. It's not about a vow of poverty. It's simply a place in your heart where you say, nothing can fill this but God. Nothing else can fill this. This I need God right in this element, this part. This, this is a sacred emptiness in me. I've been serving the Lord for most of my life, and many of you have too. Uh, there is no point of our life, there is no graduation ceremony where we have arrived and we're now like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm official. No, there is no official. All there is is do you hunger and thirst after righteous, righteousness or do you not? Can the world satisfy you? If you feed yourself spiritual junk food, you will have an unhealthy spiritual man or woman living inside of you. But if you will get some discipline in your life and say, I hunger after the better gifts. Martha, Martha, you're so busy with so many things. But there's some things that matter more than others. I want to be that individual hungry, desirous of God. Let me pray over you right now. Lord Jesus, I pray for every one of these lovely people. I thank you for what you're doing in their life. And I'm thankful for the testimonies that we have in this church of your great work. But Lord, we also are aware of how in our flesh we can begin to live shallow lives. We can individually begin to live lives where we seek this world to satisfy. Lord, would you save us from ourselves? Would you awaken within us a passion for the higher life, a passion for a better way, a passion for a heaven-centered focused? As a church, Lord, let that be founded and knitted into our church culture of who we are as a group of people and are hungry for, hungry for the anointing and the Shekinah. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. We must protect that in our life. We must protect that in our life. How many of you will start this week? <laughs> we'll start right now. <laughs> in Jesus' name, God bless you all. We love you today. If you're, uh, if you're
If you haven't been to First Steps class, we're starting a new iteration of the class this month, and today's the first lesson, and I'd love to invite you to come over and spend a little bit of time with me. I'm pretty punctual. We, I never keep you past two. Uh, we eat together. We talk together. I tell you a little bit about the church history and, and the like, and we get to know each other. I want to get to know you, so meet me halfway. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come join us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road at the corner of Shamrock Drive, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m., and Bible Study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Online, find us at firstchurchclt.com or like us on Facebook or Twitter. We hope to see you soon. Come worship with us.